Good morning, Evergreen. So this is a, uh, a prayer from the Puritan Book of Prayers. If you join me in prayer for our Father. Lord, you are the blessed God, happy in yourself, source of happiness in your creatures, my maker, benefactor, proprietor, upholder. You have produced and sustained me, supported and indulged me, saved and kept me. You are in every situation able to meet my needs and miseries. May I live by you, live for you, never be satisfied with my Christian progress, but as I resemble Christ and may conformity to his principles, temper and conduct grow hourly in my life. Let your unexampled love constrain me into holy obedience and render my duty my delight. If others deem my faith folly, my meekness infirmity, my zeal madness, my hope delusion, my actions hypocrisy, may I rejoice to suffer for your name. Keep me walking steadfastly towards the country of everlasting delights, that paradise land which is my true inheritance. Support me by the strength of heaven that I may never turn back or desire false pleasures that will disappear into nothing. As I pursue my heavenly journey, by your grace, let me be known as a man with no aim but that of burning desire for you and the good and salvation of my fellow men. Lord Father, we, uh, we uphold to you uh, today our, our college kids and high school students that are going through exams right now and soon uh, hopefully traveling home safely. We pray for uh, travel, travel mercies on their, on their travels back to us. And we pray for them during this uh, kind of stressful period where they're going through preparation for exams. We hope to our pastor search committee, Lord, we pray that um, your hand would be upon them. You would share wisdom with them. And Lord, uh, we pray that the, the right pastor is out there that you've already picked for us. We, Lord, we pray that you would hasten that, that progress and then bring that new pastor to this church. Lord, thank you for teaching us to preach or to, to pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thou will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. So today we have Levi back to unfold this passage for us. Um, we are reading from Philippians 2, 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served 
with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Okay, God's word for the people of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your word and that it speaks into our situations as we face. And we pray that you would open our hearts to hear. Pray that you would speak through Levi. Pray that you would pierce our hearts. And pray that we can attend attentively to what you have for us and, and lift up our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Robert. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, welcoming me back here. Uh, so uh, good to be with you this morning, and I'm always thankful for the opportunity to be with you. And uh, really like the decorations as well. Uh, I uh, love Christmas. Uh, it's something that you ought to know about me. I, I love Christmas. I love everything about it. Uh, some of you, maybe now that Thanksgiving is over, has some of you have just started uh, listening to Christmas music. Uh, I've been listening to Christmas music uh, for months. All right. I love Christmas. I love this time of year. I love the season of Advent. And one of my favorite uh, Christmas hymns uh, is Come Thou, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Even when I don't have it playing on the computer or on the, on the speaker, I have it playing in my head. I think about it, and I was thinking about it this week as I was preparing the sermon, and I was specifically thinking about that third uh, line, that third stanza in that hymn. It says, Come to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our Redeemer shepherd, friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, this the everlasting wonder, Christ was born the Lord of all. That stanza is such a beautiful retelling of the story of the incarnation, which is the same story that Paul shares in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 11, sometimes called the Christ hymn that we looked at uh, several weeks ago now. But it's the central point of, of this letter of Philippians, the, the humility that the Son of God had as he took on human flesh. He whose glories knew no end, he who was in the form of God, who was equal to God, this same God became man. He came to taste our sadness. He took on human flesh. He knew what it was like to be tired after a long weekend. He knew what it was like to grow hungry. He knew what it was like to feel pain, feel sadness. Though his riches were without number, yet he came and he was born in a cattle stall. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He became one of us. Emmanuel has come. 
in our passage this morning that we just heard read to us, it's a reminder of that humility that Christ had, that Christ demonstrated in the beauty of the incarnation. Our passage is a reminder of what he's done. And our passage is also a call to action for us, how we ought to live. In light of the incarnation, how must we live? We must be followers of this Christ who humbled himself. And so that means that we must likewise live with humility. So we've heard our text read. Let's, let's turn to our text now. If you haven't yet, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And we'll look at this example of Timothy from verses 19 to 24. We see uh, from our text that uh, Paul's explicit concern uh, is to uh, send Timothy to them so that he would receive news about how they're doing. He says that so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I'm sending Timothy so that I can hear how you're doing and, and uh, be cheered, be comforted, hearing that you're doing well. But there's another reason he was sending Timothy. See, he wanted Timothy to be with them because Timothy was the perfect model. There's no one else like Timothy. I have no one like him, Paul says. Because Timothy was the perfect model of the kind of humility that Paul was desiring everyone in that church to have. At many points throughout the letter, Paul has already expressed his desire for them to have this humility. Chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. He goes on, complete my joy in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He goes on, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to say why they ought to be doing all this, why they ought to have this one mind, this shared focus amongst themselves. And it's because they have the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. See, that is your supreme example of humility. That's what Paul is telling them. That is why you must also share one mind together and be humble and seek the good of others above your own, because this is what Christ has done for you. Christ is the example par excellence. He is the supreme example. Everything else in this letter will always point back to what Christ has done and to what Christ has done in the incarnation, in his life and death and resurrection that Paul summarizes in that beautiful Christ hymn in verses two, uh, 6 through 11. Everything points back to that. That's the supreme example. But Paul understands that this young church 
They might need a more tangible example. They might need some more help to understand how they are to do this, to to understand what this kind of Christ-like humility looks like. And we can understand those needs. I I don't know who here is more of a visual learner or who here uh, needs an example or two to help them understand some abstract idea. I know I can relate to that very much. Here's a tangible, physical example that you have in Timothy of what Christ-like humility looks like. And so Paul sends Timothy to them. Consider Timothy, Paul says, I have no one like him because he more than anyone else on my team models this Christ-like humility and this genuine concern for others. If you want to know how to live humbly, as Christ did, consider Timothy. In this season of Advent, when we consider, again, the incarnation and what that means and what that looks like, what does it mean for Christ to humble himself? How can we strive to live, uh, to humble ourselves as Christ did, to seek to live our lives worthy of the gospel? We can look to the example of Timothy, an example of Christ's humility. So I want to look at this example, I want to look at three different aspects of this example that'll make it more concrete for us. Three things that come right out of the text that we just read, this passage from Philippians 2, 19 through 24. Three different things that humility looks like that Timothy models for us. And there's nothing revolutionary here, but it's just a helpful reminder that we, we all need to hear. The first thing we see when we consider Timothy's life and his example is that humility looks like seeking the interests of Christ and his church. Humility is seeking the interests of Christ and Christ's church. When Paul is describing Timothy, he says that Timothy is genuinely concerned about the welfare of the church, while these other uh, unnamed group of people are all seeking their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. Well, so notice the implication of the text there. Timothy's concern for the church, the others are concerned for themselves, not for Jesus Christ. The implication is, To be concerned for the interests of Jesus Christ is to be concerned for the interests of the welfare of the church. Jesus is interested in the well-being of his body. The bridegroom is concerned about the welfare and the well-being of his bride. It makes sense. It seems simple enough. But another way to say this is that if you are not invested in the well-being of the local church, then chances are you're not truly invested in following after Christ. See, it's an an unfortunate uh, and it's a growing uh, popular opinion, especially in our American and more individualized Uh, broadly evangelical kind of understanding of what the church is, 
uh, that we can uh, have this, this idea that we can have Christ without having the church. I can immediately think of uh, two uh, anecdotes from uh, two different people that I've met over the years who have expressed different reasons why, but they've expressed the same sentiment. Uh, they were not saying they were done with Jesus, but they were done with the church. They had been hurt in some way, or they had not received the kind of uh, love that they needed, or they disagreed with some kind of uh, teaching of the church. And, and I'm not uh, discrediting all of those experiences. And I think in one instance, in one case, uh, this man who was telling me about some of the hurt he felt, I think he had a right to feel that way. The church is not perfect because it's full of imperfect people. But consider and pause for just a moment to make sure we understand exactly what they're saying. Can we really be all in for Jesus, but disregard his church, his bride, the one for whom he lived and died? And there's a less extreme, but it's still a problematic uh, belief that uh, it's, it's enough to simply attend worship regularly, uh, but that uh, church membership isn't necessary. And, you know, I, I bring these up just to uh, demonstrate uh, those kind of uh, beliefs to you. We don't have time to get into all of those, but it's a very important discussion. But the main point remains that we are called to love and serve the church the way Christ has loved and served the church, and to do that with humility. That is what Timothy did. He was humble. He did not consider his own interests, but was completely devoted to the interests of Christ and to his beloved church there in that town of Philippi, that small church. Consider just one aspect of of. Uh, Timothy's uh, selflessness as he cares for the Philippians. Uh, So it's most likely that uh, Paul's writing this letter uh, from Rome. And in verse 19, he tells uh, Timothy that he's sending him to the Philippians and that uh, he would have Timothy go to them and then he'd have Timothy come back and bring uh, good news of how they're doing back to him in Rome. So a one long round trip uh, from Rome to Philippi might not seem that bad to us today. It'd be about an eight hour flight if we were to make that trip ourselves. But what would that trip have entailed for Timothy in around uh, AD 62? One pastor summarizes this grueling journey uh, really well uh, that is put before Timothy. He says this, "The, the most direct route would be overland from Rome on the Appian Way, that's one very long road, all the way from Rome to Brindisi on Italy's southeast coast, over 350 miles. Then a voyage across the Adriatic Sea, about 90 miles, would bring him to Dyrrhachium, the western terminus of the Ignatian Way. And then he would make a 360-mile trek eastward, on the Ignatian Way, across Macedonia to Philippi. In order to bring news from Paul to Philippi and from Philippi back to Paul, Timothy would invest weeks in order to make this arduous and dangerous trip over land and sea. How 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, Timothy had that mind. He did not count himself greater than a 1,600-mile journey. 1,600 miles round trip if it meant serving the church of his Lord. Why was Timothy willing to do that? Because he had the mind of Christ, that same Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto, but who humbled himself to the point of a painful death on the cross. If my feet are sore and bleeding after this trip, Timothy told himself, that will only make me more like my precious Savior, whose feet were nailed to that tree. Do we have that same heart for the church that Timothy had? Are we willing to love and to serve and to sacrifice and to give ourselves completely in all humility to seek the interests of Jesus' church? and to seek the interests of Christ himself. Humility must look like seeking the interests of Christ and of his church. Well, that is not all. We can seek those interests in prideful and unhelpful ways at times. We can have good intentions and be sincere, but we, can also have, uh, but we must also have the humility to be able to learn and to grow and be shaped by the gospel. That's our second uh, thing we see, the second uh, thing we find in Timothy's example is that humility looks like proven fidelity to Christ's gospel. Humility is proven fidelity to Christ's gospel. Timothy would not have been the indispensable partner in the gospel to Paul and a beloved child in the faith, if he was not humbly reliant upon and a student of the word of God throughout his whole life. Notice how Paul describes him in verse uh, 22. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. The service of the gospel was the proving ground for Timothy's worth, and he proved himself worthy throughout his life and all of his ministry and everything that he did for Paul and for the church throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he proved himself again and again that he was grounded in the gospel. And so it is for us. That's the message of Galatians. That's the message of 1 Corinthians. That's the message of the entire uh, scripture is that there is no love for Christ's church that does not include fidelity and integrity to the gospel. Absent of the gospel, there is no love. And now part of what that means, practically speaking, is that true doctrine is absolutely vital. There's there's nothing loving about being untruthful. There's nothing loving about lying, especially when it comes to the ultimate truths of life, about life and death, about the resurrection, about the incarnation, about heaven and hell. But another part of what this means, and it's it's closely related to that, but another part of what uh, this means that I want to focus on this morning is that we also 
in the life of the church, we don't try to be fancy. We don't try to improve upon the gospel. We don't try to make this into something that it's not, something that God has not given us to do. That's another one of the aspects of American Christianity that I lament so much. It's this desire that we can have sometimes in the American church, especially to come up with the next big thing, to uh, strive to find the next program or the next best uh, song or the newest methods of, of church planting or church growth or whatever it might be. Even this past week, uh, the New York Times of, of all places, <laughs> the New York Times ran this headline. This headline says, horse troughs, hot tubs, and hashtags. Baptism is getting wild. That was the headline. You already know you're in trouble when you read that headline. But in that article, uh, it was highlighting several different pastors and churches around the country who were changing up the way they do baptism, including this one pastor who said that, the, that performing the age-old Christian ritual in a more informal style, quote, conveys this isn't your grandmother's church. Do you hear the impulse behind those kinds of statements? This, this pride in oneself and this lack of faith in the power of God to work through his ordained means of grace. See, we, we seek after the new because we don't trust that God is going to work the same way he did in generations past. New methods of baptism, new uh, ways of, of uh, doing music. We need multiple worship services with a traditional service and then a contemporary service and then a, a modern service after that. We need new methods on liturgy and worship and structure of the, of the, of the order of worship and the lighting, all these things. But these, these new methods, they condemn us. Uh, E.M. Bounds, a brilliant writer, uh, he wrote uh, this famous classic book on prayer, but he writes this. He says, the church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. God is looking for men and women of prayer. And know this as well. If your grandma is not, does not feel welcome at a church, and that's not a good church. So where's the humility? Where's the recognition that we have nothing, nothing at all, nothing apart from the good news of the gospel? of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all we have to offer. We have nothing. We have nothing apart from this book. You know, I, I think you're all lovely people. I really enjoy being here. But if this book wasn't true, I don't think I'd be here this morning. If this book wasn't true, I would probably be at the bar already, getting ready for NFL kickoff. But it is true. 
And in God's grace, he's opened my eyes to see that I have nothing apart from Christ, nothing at all. I am nothing, except that in Christ, I'm a new creation. Now I'm a beloved son of the living God. See, that was Timothy's proven track record. He understood the absolute reliance that he needed on the gospel, that he needed on the word of God, that he needed to put in his Christ, his Savior. And that empowered everything else in his ministry. His ministry was saturated with the word of God. So we must not think so highly of ourselves that, uh, especially when it comes to the life of the church, that we need to in any way improve upon what God has given us to do on Sunday mornings. And let me just be perfectly clear at this point that nothing I've said or am saying is directed to anything that we're doing here or that Evergreen is doing. There's no subtext here, only exhortation to keep doing what you're doing because I I really love worshiping here. And I, I love and cherish our shared reformed and Presbyterian heritage. And there's a reason the reformers that they, they whitewashed old Roman Catholic buildings as they, the Reformation swept across uh, Europe and over into, the, uh, over into uh, England and elsewhere. It's not because they hated art and stained glass windows and that they hated beautiful things. It's because they wanted the preaching of the word. They wanted the word of God to be the most beautiful part of the service. They wanted the glory of God to be the central focus of every worship service. So we talk about having simple worship because the majesty is not found in anything else but God alone. We're not trying to be smarter than God. We're not trying to do things to improve upon what he's given us, but only doing that which God has commanded us to do. The ordinary means of grace, word and sacrament, prayer. They fill our service because that's what God has given us. He's given us his word. And so uh, we speak, uh, he speaks to us in his word, and then we speak back to him with his word through song, through prayer, through preaching. We don't need anything, anything else. I want to read, it's somewhat of a lengthy quote. I know I'm pushing time a little bit, so bear with me. This is such a helpful way that this pastor, uh, Ian Wright, he, he frames this, this problem, this, this lack of faith that we can have at times to uh, trust in God to accomplish what he promises. This is a pastor uh, named Ian Wright. He's writing a devotional on Abraham, but uh, directly applies to what we're discussing. He says this, he says, we may be strong in faith to believe that God will in the end accomplish all that he purposes. But we can be weak in faith to trust with regard to the means God will use. For example, why is there an emphasis in some evangelical circles on drama in place of the sermon? Might it not come from the fact that evangelical believers have lost confidence in the power of the pulpit? The preaching of the word of God has not been anointed with the outpouring of the spirit as in previous generations. So like Sarah, we give God a helping hand. 
What we need are better techniques. Let's use the latest video technology for presenting the gospel. Let's give people something to look at. But faith comes by hearing. Or so the Bible says, Romans 10, 17. It is the foolishness of preaching that God uses to convert sinful people. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Perhaps preaching is simply meant to be foolish so that all might know that the conversion of a sinner was accomplished by the power of the spirit of the living God and not because the preacher used all the latest presentational techniques to manipulate his audience. That is so poignant for us today. All we have is the gospel. That's all we have. But we're not lacking in anything. The gospel is all we'll ever need because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I see that here in this church for this group of people. This group of people that delights in gathering together with one another. Delights in reminding one another of the promises of God of gathering in community, of seeking Christ and his church in humble reliance upon his word and upon his gospel, an outside message, an objective truth that speaks to you, speaks to us directly. We must never lose sight of that, but remain humble in reliance upon the gospel. And that leads us to the last thing. We'll go quickly through the last one here. Humility lastly means complete reliance upon Christ himself. So look back at the two bookends of our passage. Paul begins this section by saying, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And he concludes, verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also both his sending Timothy to them and his own coming to them eventually, Paul understands completely those are not decisions that he has the power to complete on his own, but they are uh, decisions that the Lord will decide upon in his own power. And we all know this. We, we all know that we are supposed to always add the phrase, Lord willing, whenever we talk to people about our, our future plans. And that's a good practice to do. We're not to be like the boastful people that uh, the book of James warns us about, uh, that today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. No. What is your life? It's, it's a vapor. It's a mist. It, it's here one day and disappears so quickly. But instead, we are to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, that's the that's the humility that Paul has, that he hopes in the Lord, he trusts in the Lord, but he does not hold his plans with a tight fist. He, he wishes, he trusts, he's persuaded in the Lord that, he, that the Lord will provide a way for him to see the Philippians again. But if that is not the case, if the Lord decides and if the Lord chooses for Paul martyrdom instead of further gospel ministry, well, Paul is ready for that as well. Paul's already told them earlier in the letter that to depart and be with Christ is far better for him. 
So regardless of the plans that and whatever lays ahead of him in the future, he is trusting in the Lord. And this is the kind of humility that we must have as well as uh, one pastor puts it. He says, Christ has the sovereign right and the infinite wisdom to revise his servants' best laid plans. That's difficult to, to do, especially in the busy holiday season, busy Christmas season. But our lives, our time, they ultimately do not belong to us. And what this example shows us is that we must be willing to even let our own plans change, our own desires change as God directs them. That is the example of humility that Paul, and especially Paul's protege, Timothy, that they demonstrate for us in this passage. A humility that considers the needs of Christ and of Christ's church always above their own. A humility that is fully dependent upon the power of the gospel. And a humility that compels them to put their trust in Christ at all times. You know, I, I told you that I love Christmas. I love that we can celebrate uh, Advent and celebrate the Advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, celebrate the inauguration of his kingdom that has no end, to celebrate that he is our sure reward, that where he is, so too will we be with him forever. The incarnation, it's uh, such a profound mi- mystery that we can spend the rest of our lives, and, and we ought to spend thinking and, and meditating on, on all that the incarnation means, all the different aspects of it, the different implications of it, of God becoming man. But our passage this morning that we just focused on gives us one of those implications. Because of the incarnation, because of Jesus' life and death and his resurrection, because that is true, he leaves us leaves us all with only two ways forward. So as we think on this example of humility, we ask ourselves, will Christmas this year be a season where our interests take center stage and our plans and our desires are the most important thing? Or will we see this season as an opportunity to let go of self to discard our own interests and to seek to model our lives after our savior, after the one who humbled himself. You see, that is the example that's laid before us this morning. That's our call to action. That's what we must go and do likewise. But here's the paradoxical nature of the Christian life that the more we let go of ourselves, the more we find ourselves. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. So consider, consider the example of Timothy Most of all, consider who Timothy himself points to. Consider the example of Christ and humbly seek after him. Let's seek after him 
together now and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you now humbly, uh, not presuming upon your grace, not presuming upon uh, your goodness, but coming in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, the friend of sinners. Lord, he did not count equality with you a thing to be grasped, but he came and he took on flesh he came and he humbled himself, even to the point of that bloody, gruesome death on the cross, so that we might have life everlasting with you. Lord, as we go about this Christmas season with so many things that can distract us and so many things, uh, good and bad, as we enjoy time together with family and friends and enjoy uh, songs and movies and and giving and receiving gifts and all the things that go along with Christmas, would we never forget the incarnation. And now you are a humble, loving, merciful God. And would we not count our lives as anything worthy except to serve and love and glorify you all the days of our lives. So I pray that we would do that now as we continue in our uh, morning worship service, would we seek to worship you and uh, do that not only today, but uh, this week ahead and this season especially. Uh, by your spirit, would you work in our hearts uh, to do that work now we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.